0: Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, God, that we would encounter you through the teaching of your word, God, that we would recognize that the living God wants to breathe life into us this morning. Uh, Lord, that we would purpose to engage our minds and our hearts, that we would pull from this text, whatever you want us to learn for, from it, God, and we would be changed by it, uh, Lord. So we, we ask you to teach us, God, um, open our eyes, help us to see as you see. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, uh, so going through the book of Galatians, we see this huge emphasis on grace, which is directly connected to the fact that we're justified by faith. Paul has really been keen on, in on this in Galatians chapter 2 specifically, and we ended off the last week going through Galatians chapter 2 verses 17 to 21. Paul makes the connection between the fact that we're justified by faith, but there's a connection between that and the killing or crucifying of the flesh. And we talked about this desire to die so that we could live spiritually. We can't live the life that Jesus offers us if we're not willing to pick up our cross and and die to ourselves. And that's what Paul's getting at in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 when he says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's going to continue to develop and help us understand this doctrine of justification that we're justified by faith. And in these first nine verses, he's going to help us make the connection to between justification and sanctification. Okay, the title of this teaching is justified by faith and sanctified by the spirit. Justified by faith and sanctified by the spirit. Paul, in this text, is going to use logic and reasoning and he's going to use the Old Testament to prove to us that we are justified and only justified by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. In his person and in his finished work on the cross. Now, we've talked a lot about justification because it's come up a lot in this epistle. Justification. To be justified biblically, it actually means to be declared righteous. To be declared perfectly righteous. So, it's not just just as if I never sinned. It's not just that God doesn't hold our sins against us anymore. It's more than that. Not only with justification do we get forgiveness, we also get righteousness. God looks at us as if we're the spitting image of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be justified. Faith. Faith. In the Bible, as we'll discuss it a little bit later on when we get into Abraham, is the Greek word pistis, or the uh, verb would be pisteo, uh, and it means to put my trust in something. So when I'm, I'm saying uh, that we're justified by faith, it means I'm declared perfectly righteous when I put my trust in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That's how we're justified. Now... If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then who gets the glory? God gets the glory, right? What's the problem? In our flesh... We want a little bit of glory, right? And that was the problem with the Judaizers. They probably didn't realize it, but the reality of it was they wanted a little bit of glory. They wanted a little, uh, a little bit of affirmation. They wanted to be able to say that they partook in their own salvation. Yeah, the cross covers about 95% of our salvation, but we got to make up that extra 5%. So this is what's going on in the churches in the region of Galatia. They're adding to the grace of God. They're adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God says, no flesh will glory in his presence that we can't be justified by the works of the law. We can only be justified by the work of the cross See, the work of salvation is the work of God, not man. The work of salvation is the work of God, not man. And Paul, he's going to help us understand that not only is salvation the work of God, not man, but also sanctification is the work of God, not man. Sanctification, it means uh, to be sanctified, means to be set apart okay uh, so positionally we're set apart okay as holy but practically we're being set apart so sanctification is the process by which God makes us holy and that process can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit Paul will get into that as well before we get into the first verse of Galatians chapter 3 we're in another transition in the focus of this epistle if you remember when we outlined the book, Galatians chapter one and two, Paul's primarily talking about his personal experiences with grace, okay? In Galatians chapter 3 to 4, Paul discusses the doctrine of grace. So that's where we'll be for the next few weeks. And then Galatians 5 and 6, Paul focuses on the practical application of grace. This is my experience with grace, this is what the Bible says about grace, and this is what I do with grace. So let's look at it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Wouldn't you want to be on the receiving end of this, right? You fool! You foolish Galatians! There's a lot of emotion in this phrase. In fact, there's a lot of emotion throughout this entire epistle. Paul Is upset. And rightfully so. These people are walking away. They're turning away from the grace of God. And his heart breaks. And he doesn't want them to make these foolish decisions. To turn their back on Jesus Christ. And what he did for them on the cross. So he says, oh foolish Galatians. Why are you turning away from the grace of God? It's always foolish to turn away from the grace of God. And be like this. Um, say mom and dad, just picture being a kid, okay, some of you are kids, picture mom and dad buy you a bunch of Christmas presents, right, for Christmas, and and, and come Christmas morning, uh, you wake up, and here are all your presents, and you see all these presents, and, and you go, uh, wait, I'm not going to open the presents yet, Can I wash the car first? Can I do my chores before I open the presents? Uh, Mom and dad, I just don't feel right opening the presents. I feel like I need to do something to earn these presents. And your parents go, you fool. We bought you these presents because we love you. Not because you're a perfect kid. We got you these gifts by grace. See, turning away from the grace of God is sitting there looking at the Christmas present and saying, I can't open it until I earned it. The Bible says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You want to experience it? you got to open it. you got to know what's in that package and what is held in that package is salvation. What hel- what's held in that package is abundance of life here on earth. The Galatians, they were turning away from the grace of God. Paul says, who has bewitched you? This word, bewitched, it means to, to put under a spell. Now, Paul uh, isn't speaking literally in the sense that he thinks someone's put them under a spell. He's using this as a metaphor to get his point of cross. Who, who is deceiving you? Who has bewitched you? Uh, this phrase, bewitched, also in the Greek, it means to put the evil eye on. Okay, To put the evil eye on. Why is this significant? Well, in Greek culture, people believed that you could cast a spell on someone by looking at them in the eyes. So I look at you in the eyes, I can cast a spell on you, right? So, so basically, you would hypnotize someone by looking at them in the eyes, and, and that's how the spell would go to that person, and they'd be cursed, or whatever the case may be. It's like, uh, anyone ever see uh, Jungle Book, right? Mowgli with the snake, and that song, that crazy song, and the snake, and the eyes, the cartoon, the original one, the cartoon, the eyes are spinning and spinning and spinning, and well, he's like, ah, oh, yeah, eat me, right? This is the phrase that's being used here. He says, who has bewitched you? Who has put the evil eye on you? The idea here is that Paul is telling them to look away from those who are deceiving him. Quit looking at them in the eyes. And look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You need to look back at Jesus and what he did for you through his death and resurrection. It says here, Galatians chapter three, verse one. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Paul knew that the churches in Galatia, they were being duped. They were being deceived. They were believing a lie about the gospel. They started off with the truth from Paul, but they got carried away. They turned away from the truth. They turned away from the grace of God because these people were bewitching them. They were literally uh, persuading them to believe something that contradicted the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're you're getting carried away. And as you believe these lies, it's going to lead you to a place where you're not obeying the truth. And this is why the enemy wants us to believe lies. This is why he's referred to as the father of lies. It's an avenue by which he steals, he kills, and destroys. He wants us to question the word of God. He wants us to turn our eyes off the cross and turn our eyes on him. That we would believe lies. Because when we believe lies, just as the churches in Galatia were doing, we'll disobey the truth. If I believe lies about myself. If I believe that I'm no good. I'll never amount to anything. That God doesn't love me. That nobody loves me. That I'll never change. That I'll never grow. I'm hopeless and helpless. In the position that I'm in. I have no hope. Because nobody cares. And God certainly doesn't care. If God sorry, if the enemy can lead me to that place where I question the love of God and I start thinking all of these false things about myself, guess what? I'm not going to worship a God that I don't think loves me, right? Uh, I'm not going to obey a God that I don't think uh, has my best interest at heart. If he can convince me to believe lies about myself, he can mess with me and my relationship with God. He can also persuade us to believe lies about this world, right? Right? The way of the world is right and the Bible is wrong because the way of the world and the Bible contradict each other. But the world, because of the God of this world, Satan, he uses our culture and he uses the world to try to persuade us what? To believe lies, that the way of the world is correct. Because if I'm convinced that the way of the world is correct, then I cannot accept the word of God. Because the word of God says that the way of the world is incorrect and we're not to fall into the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the things that are in the world, First John ch- tells us. The enemy also tries to bewitch us to make us believe lies about God. God isn't real. Or again, God doesn't care. Or that Jesus wasn't really God. Because if we don't believe that God is the God of the Bible, then we're not going to obey the God of the Bible, who is the one true God. He says, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, that you should not obey the truth. They're being turned away from the truth and believing and following lies. Here's the truth. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul's not saying that these people actually saw Jesus crucified. That's not what he's getting at here. He said portrayed. What he's getting at is I clearly, clearly preach the gospel to you where Jesus died on a cross. And he died specifically for your sins. You know how they say a uh, picture says a thousand words, but sometimes a thousand words paint a picture. And Paul was able to communicate through the preaching of the word. He was help. Uh, he was able to help these people see the cross clearly. The cross was portrayed to you clearly, not that you actually saw it, but it was communicated to you. And you know why. Jesus was crucified. At least you did know why Jesus was crucified. No one's going to debate the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. What Paul is getting at is that they need to ask themselves, why was Jesus Christ crucified? The answer, point number one, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. He's using logic here and history and he's saying, if we can be justified by keeping the works of the law, then why did Christ die? In other words, if we can justify ourselves, then Christ died in vain. Why would someone else die for my sins if I could take care of them myself? If I could justify myself, if I could, that makes no sense for Jesus to die on the cross. If I can justify myself, I can wipe my sins away or I can forgive myself. Like that makes any sense at all. He's using logic to help them understand the error of their ways. And it connects right back here. Galatians chapter 2 verse 21. Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That's the point. Okay, we know Christ died, but you got to pick which side of the spectrum you're on. Either Christ died for nothing, and we're still dead in our trespasses and sins, we're still under the law, which means we still need to live a perfect perfect life to attain salvation, or... Christ did die on the cross for our sins and no longer do we have to face the eternal consequences of our sins. But we're forgiven by Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. It's either or. The church knows that Jesus Christ died. Paul asks them, you need to reflect on and remember why Jesus Christ died. See, their eyes had wandered from the cross and started focusing on their own works. What he's telling them is, quit focusing on what you're doing for God, and remember, set your eyes upon the cross. Set your eyes upon what Jesus Christ did for you. It's Hebrews chapter 12, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 The author writes, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So Let's focus on Jesus. Set our eyes on Jesus. It's not about what we do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus did for us. Sometimes, as believers, we can fall into this pattern where we're constantly focused on what we're doing for God. God, I'm serving you. God, I'm spending time with you. God, I'm praying with you. God, I'm reading for you. God, I'm doing all these things for you. God says, son, daughter, I died for you. The only reason you should be doing any of these things is because you realize how much I love you, how much I care for you, that I'd be willing to die for you. So, so don't think that you practicing this religion is going to win my affections. You've already won my affections, not because of what you do, but because of what I did for you. The churches in Galatia, they lost focus. They were focused on what they were doing and neglected What God did for them and why God did it. The fact that Jesus died for our sins is an absolute crucial element. It's an essential element to the gospel that Jesus Christ died. History tells us, even atheistic and agnostic historians will tell you, uh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on a cross. Why did he die on the cross? He said he came to take away the sins of the world. He said he came to die for you and me. This is so important, so important that Paul says later on in First Corinthians chapter one, uh, for, sorry, First Corinthians two two. He says, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." Think about it, Paul. Paul was a very intelligent person. He was like a a philosopher and a journalist and a historian and a rabbi all mixed together. He was the real deal. He was very bright. And he tells church in Corinth, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and I'm crucified. The most important thing that I know is that Jesus died for my sins. That's what Paul's getting at. It's not about what I knew or what I did. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I count all those things as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Christ died for me. If I know anything, it's this, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. The cross atoned for the sins of the world. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the dead, which proved, among many things, that God accepted Jesus' atoning sacrifice. The text continues. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? This is point number two. The Spirit comes when faith starts. The Spirit comes when faith starts. Paul says, I want you to teach me something. Explain something to me. When did the Spirit come? Did the Spirit come into your life when you started keeping the Mosaic Law? Did the Spirit come into your life when you had that... Uh, That circumcision ceremony. Did the Spirit come into your life when you started keeping a kosher diet? Did the Spirit come into your life when you practiced some other ceremonial cleansing? Is that when you received the Spirit of God or was it when you heard? Or was it by the the hearing of faith? Let me ask you, when did you receive the Spirit of God? When did you recognize that Jesus came into your life? When it was, was it when you started keeping a bunch of rules? Or, or was it when you just simply asked Jesus to come into your life? You recognized your sinful nature. You, you recognized that you're in need of a savior. Maybe it was at a church like this or a different church or in your bedroom. You heard it on the radio or whatever the case may be. And, and you prayed a prayer and you asked Jesus, Hey, I don't want my old life anymore. I want you to forgive me of that life and I want a new life in you. Cause the Bible says, that's when the Spirit comes into our life. When we respond to the gospel by faith. We hear the gospel. We respond to the gospel. We realize who Jesus is and why we need Him. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It doesn't say that faith comes by by performing the works of the law. It doesn't say faith comes by circumcision, okay? It doesn't say faith comes by keeping a kosher diet. It doesn't say faith comes by, by those things. It says it, it comes by hearing, it, and hearing the gospel preached. It comes by hearing the word of God. In Acts chapter 10, this is important. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, we see when Peter first started preaching the gospel to Gentiles, because God told him, what happened? When he went into the house of Cornelius, he started sharing the gospel, and as he was speaking the word, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon them. They didn't do anything. They responded to the gospel in faith, and that response and sincerity of heart, believing who Jesus was and what he did for their sins, then the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them. The Holy Spirit also, we see, came upon them. See, the Holy Spirit, it's not something that we gain. He's something that we're given. The Holy Spirit is not a reward given for one's personal achievements. You can't earn the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift granted to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's truly He, the Holy Spirit, is a gift from God, who is God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He says, just think about what I'm saying here. Like you don't make any sense. It's absolute foolishness. Either Jesus died for our sins. We put our faith in that. And then the Holy Spirit comes into our life and starts changing things in our life. Or Jesus died for nothing and you're without the Holy Spirit. Or or you think you have to earn the Holy Spirit by keeping the Mosaic Law, whatever the case may be. He's just telling them it's so foolish. It doesn't add up. It doesn't even make sense. He makes it personal. In verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, meaning they began in the Spirit. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? This is point number 3. Point number 3, we're perfected by the Spirit, not the flesh were perfected by the spirit not the flesh so if you recognize that you responded to the gospel in faith, and it was in that moment, whatever it was, that you hey, the, the, something changed inside of me. So I'm not perfect, but some desires changed. God's doing some type of work in my heart. I, I recognize Him in a way that I never had before. So we respond to the gospel by faith. Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And then all of a sudden, the Galatians think, now I'm going to go back to the law and be perfected by the law. Him just bringing up this word flesh would have reminded them of circumcision. Because that was one of the main problems that were going on right now. That was one of the things that the Jewish Christians thought that the Gentile Christians needed to do. If you want to, yeah, you accepted Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit might have came into your life. But you have to, if you want your salvation to be legitimate, you also must keep Or be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law. The flesh cannot perfect us. The flesh will not perfect us. No matter how hard you try to be perfected in your flesh, guess what? It is not going to happen. Why? Because your flesh is imperfect. you can 't take something that 's imperfect and use that as the power to make something perfect. It just doesn 't make sense at all. Paul says in Romans seven, there's no good thing that dwells in my flesh. <laughs> there's nothing good there, so how can something that 's not good turn into something that 's perfect and the power of itself it doesn 't make sense. See, when we pursue perfection in our flesh, we're saying the cross wasn't enough, okay? We're saying the cross wasn't enough, and we're saying that we need to supplement our faith. We need to add to our faith. Yeah, the cross thing, that's an important part, but also uh, are these works that I need to perform to make sure that my salvation is legitimate. When we attempt to add to the work of Christ in an effort to earn salvation, we're ruining the work of Christ. So let me ask you a question: Who's the greatest basketball player that ever lived? Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? Who's Michael Jordan? Raise your hands. LeBron James? Nobody's. A couple. A couple of young guys. Kobe Bryant. <laughs> Kobe Bryant. I'm just trying to ruffle feathers here. Okay, so Michael Jordan's obviously the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Um, so we'll just start. We'll just start there. Um, so say. I received a Michael Jordan signed basketball, like the real deal. And Michael Jordan, he put that signature on that basketball, and he gave it to me, and I started looking at it, and I'm like, I don't really like how Michael Jordan's signature looks. So I'm going to start tracing over it and kind of filling in the gaps and make it kind of look how I want it to look. What would I do to the value of that basketball? I would ruin it. Nobody wants a basketball that Tanner Payne traced over the signature of Michael Jordan, right? Nobody wants that. People want a basketball signed by Michael Jordan. But me trying to trace it, trying to perfect what Michael Jordan did, I'm ruining it. I'm destroying it. And this is what we do when we try to add works in an effort to receive salvation. Now, don't get this twisted. I'll talk about this in a little bit. This doesn't mean, and I'm not saying that works shouldn't be a part of a Christian's walk. They absolutely should. We're talking about salvation specifically. And he's also talking about sanctification even more specifically. Verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The flesh cannot perfect us, only the Holy Spirit can perfect us. We cannot be perfected in our flesh. But the Holy Spirit, He does that work in our hearts, He does that work in our lives to perfect us. At 2 Corinthians 3:18. Uh, He says, Paul writes, But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what Paul's telling us is that the Holy Spirit's the one... That's sanctifying us. The Holy Spirit is the one that's transforming us from the inside out. So that we would look like the perfect image of Jesus Christ. That's one of the primary goals of the Holy Spirit. To transform people into the image of Jesus Christ. And God promises that he's going to accomplish what he set out to do. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has done a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning, once God starts on something, he doesn't stop, okay? He doesn't stop till it's finished. God is not the construction worker that starts building a building and says, This person's too hard i'm giving up on him like yeah I didn't really know what I got into when I came into this person's life like uh, I quit i'm out i'm bailing No, that's not what the holy spirit does when he comes into our lives He says i'm not leaving until the work is done until the work is complete I'm destined and determined to perfect this individual and only he can why because the holy spirit is god And only god is perfect The flesh plus anything does not equal perfection. It's the Holy Spirit that does that work of sanctification that leads us to that place of perfection. And he's not going to give up. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility when it comes to sanctification. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, paraphrased, he says, uh, We're called to work out what God works in. By His Holy Spirit. Okay, so, uh, let's just use a, an illustration. Okay, so the Holy Spirit starts doing something in your heart. You start getting convicted about certain things. Maybe it's a, a relationship that you have that you know you shouldn't be in. Maybe it's a, a bad habit. Maybe it's smoking cigarettes, or maybe it's an addiction, or or maybe it's just like you notice how selfish you are all the time, right? I don't know what your sin is, but you do, hopefully. And we see the Holy Spirit, he starts convicting us in our hearts and he says, hey, 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 hey! I'm changing this thing in your life. I'm changing this thing in your life. I'm bringing this thing to the surface. I'm giving you the power to overcome this thing, but I'm not going to force you to overcome it. I'm going to give you the power to overcome it and help you realize that it needs to be overcome. But it's your responsibility to work out what I'm working in. That's our responsibility in the sanctification process. We simply walk out externally what God is doing in our hearts internally. It's Him doing the work. It's us responding to the work that He is doing. This shows us that the way the Christian faith starts is the way that it continues. The way that our relationship starts is through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. And it has to continue through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. But sometimes we start with faith in Jesus Christ and God bailed me out of a bad situation. I was on my way to hell. I was on my way to death. I was destroying my life and the lives of people around me. And it started off by faith. I had nothing to bring to God other than my sin. And God, He came. He took care of my sin. He forgave my sin. And now all of a sudden, I'm going to start practicing a religion and putting trust in myself and performing the works of the law so that I could be accepted by God, you fool, God accepted you when you came to him as a broken sinner it 's not like you 're going to do more or get better, so god 's going to accept you more god 's going to love you more. He loves you as much as he possibly can in the present moment. The churches in Galatia, they were confused. So Paul brings clarity and then he says in verse four, Galatians three, four, have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So uh, if you recall, if you were with us when we were going through acts, um, The chances are, uh, I made this argument in the past. I won't get into it in detail, but at the end of Acts chapter 14, when Paul's in Antioch for many days is believed when he wrote the book of Galatians and he was just in the region of Southern Galatia. And we see the last event that Acts talks about was when Paul, what, when he was preaching the gospel and he got stoned. Okay, when, when he was persecuted for his faith and we see even Jews from Antioch and Lystra and all these different uh, Places they traveled some of them over a hundred miles. Why to persecute Paul and Barnabas? They were out to kill him. they were out to get him Paul was stoned The text implies that he might have died the people around him thought that he was dead So Paul he faced persecution in the southern region of Galatia but apparently he wasn't the other one, the only one that suffered persecution. Verse four, he says, have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. He's saying, hey, the reason that you suffered persecution is because you preached Christ and him crucified. Okay. So now you going back to a works based law, we got to think about this. If Jesus didn't actually die for your sins. Then you suffered for nothing. Then you were persecuted for nothing. Why? Because suffering, persecution, is a byproduct of sharing the gospel. In John chapter 16, Jesus says it like this, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So Jesus made it very clear. Okay? If you're going to live for me, if you're going to preach the gospel, and this is what Paul was doing, going to the synagogues, you're going to suffer. If Jesus keeps coming out of your mouth, then there's going to be some form of persecution suffering is our reward for living for jesus among other things suffering is our reward for living for jesus on this earth but it's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed later he tells this church man If the gospel I preached to you wasn't right, and the gospel you're being told now is right, then you suffered persecution for nothing. But think about it. It was those Jewish leaders that came to the region of southern Galatia and started persecuting us when? When we were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're no longer under the burden of the law. Galatians chapter 3 verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you And works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law. Or by the hearing of faith. He says. He who supplies the spirit to you. Jesus supplies the Holy Spirit to believers. In John chapter 16 verse 7. Uh, He says it's to your advantage that I depart. It's to your advantage that I go away. Why? So I can send you the helper. So I can send you the Holy Spirit, okay? Right now I'm a man, I can help you, but there's limitations with my humanity. But when I go, I can send you the Holy Spirit, and He can be with all of you at all times. He says it's your advantage. And Jesus, we see in Galatians chapter, or sorry, uh, Acts chapter 1, Entering into Acts chapter 2, after he ascended in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 2, what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit just as he said. Jesus supplies the Holy Spirit, and he supplies the Holy Spirit in abundance. In fact, when Jesus is teaching about praying in Luke chapter 11, along the lines of praying, he says, ask for the Holy Spirit. Okay, If you're going to ask for anything in your life, Ask for the Holy Spirit because you have a good father that wants to give you good things. And the best thing that he can give you is his divine essence, his divine character. He wants to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life that he's asking you to live. And sometimes we just don't operate in it because we forget to ask. We forget to ask. We neglect the one who supplies the Holy Spirit freely, willingly, And this isn't just a one-time ask thing. Like, I asked for the Holy Spirit 10 years ago. If the last time that you asked for the Holy Spirit wasn't today, then it's been too long, okay? If the last time that you asked for the Holy Spirit was yesterday or last week, then it's been way too long. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek there is be being filled. Constantly be asking, right? We're leaky vessels. I've asked God to fill me with the Spirit like, I don't know, I think it was five times before first service. Now it's like, I don't know, probably seven or eight. I I don't know how many times. It's like He says, ask, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'll empower you to live the life that I've called you to live. But don't expect to live it if you're not asking. The Holy Spirit is supplied by Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, so the same God that was providing the Holy Spirit is the same God that was performing miracles among them. Now, we don't know how, uh, what miracles God was doing in that region specifically, but we know that God used Paul to heal many people. He used Peter uh, to raise people from the dead. Like He used these guys to do all kinds of stuff. Um, so he was working miracles among these people. He says, these miracles... Same God that supplied the Holy Spirit provided these miracles and these miracles were given. They weren't earned. <laughs> you didn't receive the miracle of healing once you got circumcised, right? It wasn't like you performed some law, some act of obedience. And then all of a sudden God performed a miracle. No, you say, no, no, these miracles, just like the Holy Spirit, were freely given. They were for a sign so people would know that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Now, the same God that supplies the Holy Spirit now, just as he did then, the same God that performs miracles then still wants to do them now. Yes, God is a God of miracles. The greatest miracle he really does is transforming a heart, changing a life, bringing people to salvation. But that's not the only miracles God does. God still does miracles today. I know people who God has performed miracles with. There's a lady that we met in Liberia and she was blind for many years. I can't remember if she was born blind or not. They laid hands on her and prayed for her and she received her sight in an instant. Hey, you, you remember Luke Patterson. Yeah, he came here as a missionary. We support in the Middle East. He was just here a little while ago. This is wild. This actually happened in your backyard. This happened right down the hill. Uh, this was about two years ago. Uh, I remember Luke was, uh, I wasn't there. Luke was leading an evangelism outing. Um, and he came upon this lady uh, in this store. And she had this rash this red rash all over her face, and she had had it for months, and and Luke felt compelled to ask her about it. Like, that's uncomfortable, right? Like, he doesn't know if she's had it her whole life, like, asking the lady about the rash on her face, right? But he did, because he felt like he was supposed to. So he asked this lady, he said, hey, he was sharing the gospel, she was responsive, and and he's like, hey, uh, what's up with the rash? You know, I don't know how he said it. (laughs) What's wrong with your face? No, he probably didn't say that. Uh, so what's going on there? She's like, I don't know. I've had this thing for months. Like, I I don't know. I just can't get rid of it. Whatever cream I put on it, whatever the case may be, it just won't go away. And he's like, I feel like we need to pray for you for this. So they laid hands on the lady. They prayed that the rash would be healed. Literally in that instant, it was gone. It's gone in a moment, in an instant. The God that performed miracles in the early church still wants to perform miracles now. And he does it for his purposes. He does it for his glory. Paul's reminding these people who God is. He's the one that supplies the spirit freely. He's the one that performs the miracles. You're not the one that, that perform the miracles. Even if God uses a man to perform the miracles, it's not the man earning the miracle or working for the miracle. It's God choosing to use that man to work that miracle. So he reiterates this phrase in a different way. Does he do it? Verse 5. By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Do you earn the Holy Spirit again? Do you earn the miracles or do these things come by faith? Galatians chapter 3 verse 6. He says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul used logic and reason. Now he's going to use the Old Testament quite a bit throughout this chapter actually. uh, The next couple chapters. Um, He's going to use the story of Abraham to help them understand that justification comes through faith. It is not earned. So he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is point number four. Righteousness comes through faith. Righteousness comes through faith. Now. The idea that Abraham believed God is not simply that he believed in God. Like, he believed that there was a God and he just happened to believe in the right God. Uh, no, the, the Bible teaches us in uh, James chapter 2 verse 19 that even the demons believe in God and tremble. Satan believes in God. And guess what? He ain't going to heaven. We don't want him in heaven. He'd ruin it again. The belief that the Bible teaches, again, is that word pistis, the noun, pisteo would be the verb, and it's not simply an intellectual belief. It's a relational belief. It's a relationship. It's putting my trust in another person. I'm putting my trust in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews makes this argument, exactly what I'm talking about. He talks about all the Israelites in the wilderness and God performed miracle after miracle after miracle, right? He parted the Red Sea. He provided manna, provided water out of a rock. He did miracle time and time again, revealed himself like he filled the tabernacle with his glory. He, he, he led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You think these people didn't believe in God? They knew God was real. They knew God was legit. They didn't perish in the wilderness because they didn't have an intellectual concept of God. They did. They perished in the wilderness, Hebrews chapter 4 says, because they didn't trust God. They didn't pisteo God. They didn't have a relationship with God. They didn't want a relationship with the God who brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. That's why they perished in the wilderness. This is the faith that Abraham had. He had a relationship with God. He believed not just in God. He trusted God. And Abraham was declared righteous. Because he believed God. Trusted God. And trusted his promises. Specifically. The promise. That Paul is referring to here. Is in Genesis chapter 15. Now. Um. God had made Abraham an initial promise in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, towards the beginning of of Abraham's life, when he called him to go out to the place, which he would receive as an inheritance. Hebrews tells us he went out not knowing where he was going, but, but God promised in Genesis chapter 12, uh, that, that he was going to take care of Abraham, that he's going to leave his family, that God is going to give his descendants, not just the lamb. He also promised this, this is the key to the promise. God said he was going to bless the nations through his seed. That's why Abraham, Abram gets changed to Abraham, father of many nations. Okay. Not just the father of the Israelites, fathers of many nations. So he's building on this promise in Genesis chapter 15 verse six or look at verse four. You'll get some context. And behold, and the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord. He trusted God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, Abraham didn't just believe in the promise of Isaac, okay? It's more than this. Abraham didn't just believe that God was going to give him a son. Abraham believed the whole promise, that God was going to bless the nations through his seed. Abraham knew that the Messiah would come through his lineage. He knew that this promise was connected to the Messiah. Believe the promise of God. Why? Because he trusted God. The only way we're going to trust God's promises is if, if what? If we trust Him. Okay, that's why he trusted the promise because he trusted God. He trusted in his character. He knew who he was and he's called a friend of God. They had a tight relationship and because he trusted God, God accounted to him for righteousness. This word accounted, uh, literally means to, to place something in someone's accounts. Um, so literally, uh, Abraham has faith in God, and God puts righteousness in his account. He says, man, you believe me, you trust me, you have a relationship with me, and I'm going to declare you righteous. I'm going to put righteousness in your account. And that's exactly what Paul's getting at. The same faith that God desires from Abraham is the same faith that God desires from us. And the same righteousness that he accounted to Abraham is the same righteousness that he wants to account to us. When we put our faith in the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, he declares us righteous. We'll get into that a little bit more. But it's interesting. When we look at the promise to Abraham, God didn't make Abraham promise God that Abraham would do something for God. Okay? God just promised that he was going to do something, meaning this wasn't a conditional promise, okay? There's certain promises like the law, there's a lot of conditions with it, but this promise preceded the law and, and there were no conditions attached. God didn't say, hey, Abe, if you do this and if you're willing to sacrifice Isaac and if you're willing to travel and if you're willing to all do this, then all bless the nations through your seed. No, 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 God just said, hey, Abe, this is what I'm going to do, okay? I promise you that this is what I'm going to do. Regardless of what you do, this is what I'm going to do. And that's exactly the promise of salvation it's a promise of what god is going to do of what god actually did the promise of abraham it wasn't received when abraham circumcised himself and his family it wasn't received when he was willing to sacrifice isaac no this text precedes all those other things Abraham was declared righteous when he believed before he ever got circumcised before he ever was willing to sacrifice Isaac He's proving the point that even in the old testament Righteousness justification it comes by faith. He says this in Romans chapter 4 In Romans chapter 4 along the same lines he's making the same point just gives us a little more detail Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness... How then was it accounted while he, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised but while uncircumcised, and he received the sight of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also he 's making the point that God that david uh, sorry that abraham didn 't earn this promise. He didn't do anything to get this promise. God just made a promise. And Abraham believed the promise. The promise made to Abraham is not earned through circumcision or by keeping the law. We only respond to it by faith. Now, this would have thrown off many of the rabbis in that time period. And we know there's a Jewish influence there in the region of Galatia. Because the rabbis taught and they believed they didn't put this big emphasis on on uh abraham's righteousness that comes through faith they believed that somehow abraham knew the levitical law he knew the mosaic law and abraham kept god's law even though the bible doesn't say that they believe that abraham kept god's law and that's why he was declared righteous but that's not what the bible teaches the bible teaches he was declared righteous because he trusted in god he believed in god so this would have would have, would have been problem, uh, problematic for many of the Jewish believers here in the region of Galatia. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it's important to note that it wasn't just the faith of Abraham that made him righteous. It was the God to whom Abraham had faith in that made him righteous, okay? Because if Abraham's faith Is directed towards some other God. Then guess what? He is not declared righteous. It was God who declared him righteous. Abraham believed in the one true God. The Lord of Lords. The King of Kings. The living God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jesus Christ. Abraham put his trust in the real God. And because he put his trust in the real God. God had declared him righteous. But it was God that was declaring Abraham righteous, not Abraham earning or attaining righteousness. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now, culturally, still to this day, the Jews, you knew this, uh, claim to be sons of Abraham, um, which... Uh, when we look at the bloodline, okay, that's true, sons and daughters of Abraham, but there's two different kinds of sons and daughters of Abraham. There's sons of faith and then there's the bloodline, okay? Now, uh, the Jewish, uh, uh what, the Jews in general, if a Gentile converted, uh, to, to Judaism, they wouldn't let the Gentile refer to themselves as sons of Abraham. So you're not a son of Abraham. Like you're a convert, and yeah, okay, now you're in, but but you're kind of not really in. They they looked at the Gentiles always as lesser than them, and so the Jewish believers are taking this into their Christian walk, and, and they're looking at the Gentile believers, and they're saying, hey, you'll never be a son uh, or a daughter of Abraham. Your your salvation isn't as solid as ours, or or you're not as good as us because we're God's chosen people. Paul makes it clear that Abraham is the father of faith for the Jew and the Gentile. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist mentioned something similar, rebuking the religious leaders of the day. He says this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he, uh, it's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. John the Baptist got it. He said, hey, hey, don't put your hope in your lineage, okay? Don't put your hope in your dad. Don't put your hope in your your mom and, and, and where you came from. Put your hope in your relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, you need to bear fruits worthy of repentance. If you just go along life and say, hey, I'm a son of Abraham, I'm making it to heaven. He says, no, John the Baptist says, no, that's not how it works. Sons of Abraham are sons of faith. And yes, there's the lineage and there are so many promises that are made to the Jewish people, their bloodline, their lineage. And there's also the sons of Abraham who are, of the same faith as Abraham. They trusted in the same God. There's like a whack theology that's out there. It's called the replacement theory uh, that the Jews rejected the Messiah. So now the church replaces the Jews. So all the promises that God made throughout the whole Old Testament, and there's many to the Jewish people, uh, they're null and void. It's only for the church now. Uh, but it's not true. We see in Romans chapter 11, among other areas, that, that there's always going to be this remnant that God has been preserving uh, uh, in Israel since... The beginning of the promise to Abraham through the Babylonian exile and the Assyrian exile and the Holocaust and all these different things. Point is, there are promises specifically for the Jew that God is going to fill. He's bound to fulfill. Why? Because God's a promise keeper and he's going to keep those promises that he made to the Jew. He's not a God that goes back on his word and he doesn't just say, yeah, well, I'm taking it back. That's not who God is. He has promises for the Jew. He also has promises for the church. Paul continues, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. He says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What Paul does here is fascinating. He doesn't distinguish a difference between God's promise to Abraham in Scripture, meaning Paul is telling us, and he does tell us later on that Scripture is the Word of God. Okay, Scripture is the Word of God. Okay, it's not like oh, we look at what God said in His promises through the prophets or Abraham or whatever. Or or uh, we're red letter Christians. You ever any of these? I didn't even know they existed. Red letter Christians. It's crazy, right? Like, well, it has to be if Jesus said, but Jesus said this and that says it's like it doesn't contradict. You got to study your Bible better because the Bible says that all scripture is God breathed from Genesis to Revelation. Paul makes it clear scripture. What comes out of God's mouth is the same thing. They go hand in hand. He says, foreseeing, verse eight, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Paul's point is that God had a plan for the Gentiles all along. It was from that promise that he made uh, to Abraham. I mean, you could technically bring it back to to the Garden of Eden and the promise that he made to Eve. But he says this promise to, to Abraham was to bless all the nations, the Gentile nations as well, not just the nation of Israel. And I love this. This is crazy. Look what it says. For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Paul tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham. Like that's wild to think about, but it helps us understand that Abraham, once again, he knew that the Messiah would come through his lineage. Okay. He knew that God would send Messiah. You know what else he believed? This is interesting. In Genesis chapter 22, when uh, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, and Isaac goes, hey, where's the lamb? <laughs> okay, you're the lamb, buddy. No, he goes, where's the lamb? And, and, and Abraham goes, God himself will provide the lamb. And later he provided a ram. But Abraham knew that God one day would provide himself a lamb actually he would provide himself as a lamb that's why it's so crucial when john the baptist says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world abraham he knew that god was going to bring forth messiah he believed in an atoning sacrifice for sin and you know what else he believed he believed hebrews chapter 11 i think it's verse 19 tells us this that he wasn't worried about sacrificing isaac in other words because he knew god would raise him from the dead he believed in the resurrection. In fact, he tells his servants in that same passage in Genesis chapter 22, "We'll both be coming back, whether I kill him and God raises him from the dead or another way." Like Isaac's coming back, He believed in the resurrection. He believed Messiah was coming, He believed in an atoning sacrifice. He believed in the resurrection. Why? Because God preached the gospel to him. His promise, the promise God made to Abraham, was a foreshadowing of the gospel and we see that promise get more and more pieces put together through Isaac and uh and, and Jacob and Judah and David and it becomes to this picture oh this is what it was did Abraham know exactly how everything was going to play itself out likely not but God preached the gospel to him and he believed in the god of the gospel all the nations will be blessed through Abraham that's through the Messiah, which we'll get into next week. Verse 9, close here. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Just as Abraham was blessed by God for putting his faith in God, so too are we Blessed by God, by putting our faith in God. And this word blessed, it it, it means happy or, or joy-filled. There's not just the blessing that we're going to receive eternal life with Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him, but, but there's also reality that he offers this uh, abundant life here, this surplus of life, this content, uh, this life of contentment. He offers us a happy life, a, a joy-filled life. That doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. No, actually, things are often very difficult. But there's a blessing in living a life of faith. Just as our relationship with Jesus starts with faith, it's to continue on with faith. Abraham was a father of faith. Not because he was the first one to get circumcised. Not because he received the law prematurely. Not because he did anything but put his faith in God and the promise that he gave him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you um, that we're saved by grace through faith, God, that, that it's not about what we do, it's about what you have done for us. Uh, Lord, and I, I pray that we would be people that walk by faith, God, that we would trust you in all things in our life, that we would truly put our trust in you, God, relationally, that, that we wouldn't just think that believing in God uh, is the faith that the Bible teaches. That's not the faith of Abraham. That's not the faith the Bible teaches, God, but we would have a relationship with you. We'd put our trust in you and what you did for us on the cross, God. And as we walk by faith, we would receive... Um, we would receive the blessedness, the, 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 joy that comes along with, with living for you and, and recognizing our purpose on this earth. God, so I pray that you would give us the faith to walk by faith, Lord. If there's anyone here that's struggling with faith or, or doesn't have faith or has questions, I pray that they would leave, they wouldn't leave here, uh, without seeking out some of those answers, God. So bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.